Good morning. Uh, I don't know what your experience was like with church or faith growing up. Um, we've talked a little about mine, but if, if you grew up in church and your faith experience was similar in any way, uh, my guess is you're, you're going to relate to this, that somewhere along the way, when it, when it comes to faith, when it comes to uh, how we behave, there, something kind of um, happens, and I don't think we intend it to happen. I don't think any religious leaders kind of put out to make it happen. It just is kind of the, the natural kind of ebb and flow of religion, that if we're not careful, it all kind of points this way or it leads this way or it causes things to, to kind of shape uh, this way in, in our lives. And the best way I could say it is, is this. It really, it, it kind of pushes behavioral conformity. That, that, that there's things that you have to do to become a part of it. As a matter of fact, we hear that all the time as, as church leaders. What do I have to do to be a part of your faith or your church? And I think most of the time people are really surprised when we say, well, nothing. But I thought, I thought we had to behave a certain way. And, and then when we behave a certain way, don't we have to start doing things a certain way? I mean, I mean, when we come into an environment, we have to behave, we have to do certain things. And think of any environment, any new environment you go into, there's a way to behave and a way to do things. And, and more often than not, we see this happen in church, and it makes it a little weird and a little awkward. If we're being really honest, it, it, it maybe even pushes us away from going to church because, you know, people kind of push their way of doing things and their way of believing on you. And I, that doesn't make any sense. That, that sounds a little weird. And, and, and perhaps you just start taking steps away from faith and out of church and because that just seems really weird. See, what's really interesting is when Jesus kind of comes on the scene, he, he, he really shifts everything. He kind of flips the script entirely. And one of the most stunning ways that he does it is, is in a line we're going to read in just a moment. And what's really interesting, when you hear this line, it's not going to catch you off guard. But I can't stress enough at how paradigm shifting this statement was when he made it. You're going to hear, and my guess is, and I've been kind of prepping for this all week, I'm just going to turn around and there's going to be blank faces everywhere. But when Jesus said it to his first century Judean audience, my guess is there was an audible, like, <gasps> gasp in the crowd. No one could believe that he would make such a radical statement. Are you ready for the statement? Here's what he says. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And it's exactly what I expected. Seriously? Like, that's, that's all you got? That's the best you got? Like, like, surely Jesus said more radical things than this. But the truth is, this statement and what this statement would, would kind of imply and, and, and kind of show Jesus' movement for ministry, this was like absolutely radical. Nobody had ever thought about things this way. Because this, this idea of Sabbath, this was so sacred to this first century Judaism, even to modern Judaism. This is what kind of set them apart from every other religion and every other culture. As a matter of fact, it didn't matter if you were a Jew, if you were just visiting a Jew or in a Jew's home come, come Sabbath. Every Everybody honored the Sabbath. It's what you do. It's how you behave. It's how you live. This is just what you do. And Jesus shows up and he's like, no, you, you, you kind of got it backwards. The Sabbath wasn't made, or rather, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And we don't fully understand that statement, but I'm going to try to explain it to you in a way that we can understand how radical it was. Think of yourself as a parent. No, no parent, no couple ever says this. We have all these toys. We need some kids, right? No one ever says, nobody, said, nobody has children, so there will be someone to play with the toys. We've stockpiled toys. We've got cribs and you know, baby clothes and sheets, and while that's all exciting, we just need some kids, some babies to make all this useful. No, the, the, the toys were purchased or given on behalf of the children. 
not children on behalf of the toys. It's not like we're sitting around thinking, man, these toys are really bored. Somebody needs to come around and play with them. It's, it's very similar to this way. So let me back up a little bit and see if I can kind of reiterate what Jesus is saying another way. Um, and this might come as a shock to some of you, but this is, is really what he's saying, is that God didn't create us so there would be somebody to keep his rules. My guess is that's probably how you felt going to church. The truth is, even for me, and I've kind of been a lifelong Christian. I grew up in church, and I remember the day that where I you know, made my faith public in baptism. I remember all of that. But there were moments in my life where, if I were being completely honest, I feel like I did things and I acted a certain way and kind of did this formulaic thing because it's, it's what we had to do. It was, it was behavioral conformity. It was the thing to do. And, and it was almost as if we were doing these things because that was the point of it. We were here to keep God's rules. God's rules were utmost important, and then we were just here to keep it. But at any time the rule takes the place of the purpose of the rule, the people, anytime we get it backwards, people get hurt. And unfortunately, for, for hundreds of years, and even as we're going to see in today's story out of the Gospel of Mark, for thousands of years, that's exactly what happened. Religious leaders, people like me, we, we, we tend to, to veer the kind of the gravitational push of religion is to turn it around, where the rules take priority over people. You see, this may be, be uncomfortable for you to hear. Maybe you're sitting at home, and the reason you're sitting at home and you're not coming to a church is because you've struggled with this idea, but you need to hear this this morning. God loves you more than God loves his commandments. It's true of all of us. And my guess is, if we've had some experience with religion, that statement doesn't always line up, does it? But it's very true. And any time that script is flipped, we hurt people. We hurt the very people that God loves so much that he would send his only son into the world to save them. We hurt the people very much of the reason that God made his commandments. You see, what you need to hear is that God is for you, that God loves you. And it's very specifically, God is for you and you and you sitting at home for each of you. And the commandments, the rules, the laws, we weren't created to honor them. They were created to help us. You see, when religious leaders, when we use the law of God to manipulate people made in the image of God, what we're going to find out this morning, and this is really, really like something Jesus does all the time, and it's, it's really, I think, interesting and exciting. Jesus was very quick to remind them that they were on the wrong side of God. That the most, what we would consider the most religious person, the most holy person, would stand up against the most religious and holy people every time they flip the script. You see, the heart of the struggle of Christianity, and my hope is, is that you, you, you hear Jesus' words today as we begin to read them on, on the page, is that all of this was created for you, not you for it. So that you would know your Heavenly Father, so that you could engage with your Heavenly Father, so that you would have a relationship with your Heavenly Father. That takes us to part three of You're Not Far. Previously, on You're Not Far. <clears throat> uh, we've been kind of rolling along with this story, this story that should have died in Nero's Rome. Unfortunately, it did not. It's the story of Jesus of Nazareth, as told from one of his most famous disciples, perhaps his most famous disciple, Simon Peter, who we know as Peter. Simon's telling his story, and the story is kind of written down by a man named John Mark, 
John Mark is Simon Peter's traveling companion. Simon's been traveling around for 30 years telling the story of Jesus and the life of Jesus. And John's travel, or Mark, in the latter part of, of John's ministry, he's now in his 50s. He's in the city of Rome. He is, he's, he's not going to get out of here, but he has no idea he's not going to get out of here. He will die here. <clears throat> one last time, Mark's traveling with him. Just tell me the story one more time and let me write it down. Mark writes the story down, and later, as I shared with you last week, Mark actually had to, to flee Rome and kind of escape with this story, and he made it down to Egypt, and the story was, was written down and copied and copied, and, and over the course of time, the story was, was collected with other stories of the life of Jesus, other gospels and the letters of Paul, with, with the Old Testament, with the Jewish Bible, and it was put together in a book we call the Bible. But Mark, and I don't want you to miss this, Mark wasn't writing the Bible. This is the gospel of Mark, and, and Mark was writing the account of Peter, or rather of Jesus, as told by Peter. Mark's telling us the story that he heard from the man who spent time with Jesus. So, so, so don't hear me reading the Bible. Hear a personal account of what it was like to travel with Jesus. <clears throat> According to Peter, he would say that the theme of Jesus' message, this is kind of how he starts his gospel off, and this is what we've been hitting so much that you'll never forget it. Jesus' time on earth, everywhere Jesus went, Peter would say, every person he talked to, he, he just hit this thing over and over and over again. He preached it every time he could. This was the theme of Jesus' message. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near, which means you are never far. Your one decision, your one, your one turn step, you're, you're, just, you're one step away from the Father. And you've been invited, and I've been invited, we've all been invited, and Jesus would say, to turn from, to repent, and believe the good news. And repent in this instance means to turn from our old way of living, and, and to kind of accept or, or to follow this new way of living. And Jesus said, this is the new thing that I have for you. And Jesus had been traveling around the countryside, to telling people uh, uh, this, this message, the time has come, the kingdom of God, repent and believe. Previously, as we talked about on, on Not Far, Jesus has made his way up to Capernaum, and we've been going through this, this little map, so we're going to put it up for you one more time. He's up here in Capernaum. If you can see it, uh, this is the Sea of Galilee. Down here is the Dead Sea. Here's the Jordan River. Over here is the Mediterranean. We're all caught up. There's Jerusalem. Jesus is spending a lot of his time up here in Capernaum. It's a fishing village with all these little villages kind of uh, around this, this little sea. And he's traveling around and he's teaching this message. And where we left off last time, he, he did some radical things. He healed some people. It was really crazy. And then he meets this man. And it's a man that Peter knows. And we know that Peter knows it because Peter tells Mark the guy's dad's name. He runs into this man, Levi. Levi is a tax collector. Remember where we left off last week? They're kind of serenading him from a distance. And Peter kind of leans over to Jesus like, yeah, this guy's gross. I don't know what went wrong with him. His dad's good. His mom's good. But he just kind of missed it. Right, his family hates him. No one likes him. And then Jesus walks up to him and Peter's like, here, he's going to let him have it. I've been waiting for Levi to get his. And Jesus walks up and he kind of leans in. Hey, Levi, follow me. And Peter's like, well, that's not what, Jesus, come on, come on. Of all people, Levi? Like everyone knows what, what, what the wrong he's done. He's doing it out in public on the corner every day. Why would you ask him, Jesus, don't do this. The, the, the religious people, the, the patriots, they're going to be at war with you. You've, if he follows you, everyone's going to hate you. Jesus leaned in. Levi, follow me. Much to their surprise, Levi says, okay. Now Peter, James, John, Andrew, they have a decision to make. Do we follow Jesus or do we go do our own thing? Because I don't know that I can roll with this. The truth is they've seen too much. 
So, so they continue to follow Jesus. Jesus leans into Levi. Levi, follow me. Levi decides, okay, I'll follow you. Where are we going? Le Jesus kind of smiles. Well, I thought we'd go to your house. Seriously. Yeah, we're going to go to his house. And, and now I'm sure Peter's thinking, as Peter often would, <clears throat> why? Like, could this get any worse? Wow, the story picks up here. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, and, and it doesn't just end with like Levi and, and, and the four and Jesus. And it, it, Peter says it, it actually gets worse than that. It actually gets much worse than that because Peter had pe people, or rather Levi had people that he knew. And Levi, as we're going to find out later, his name actually changes to Matthew. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, <clears throat> many tax collectors and sinners were eating there with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Essentially, it's like Peter, like Matthew or Levi turned around when Jesus said, follow me, we're going to go to your house for dinner. Matthew turns around and says, okay, guys, let's close the office early. Let's just, we're all going to pack up. We're all going to go to my house. Bring your family, bring your friends. Let's go have a big dinner and hear what this guy Jesus has to say. And they're all at his house. They're all eating dinner. I mean, just imagine, Peter was already uncomfortable with just Levi. And then Levi brings the rest of the tax collectors and the rest. I mean, he is uncomfortable. It is not going well for Peter. When the teachers of the law, these are the Pharisees, these are the people that, who thought Jesus should be, you know, with us. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners, essentially they had been shadowing Jesus. Because Jesus' teaching was so disruptive, he was, he was saying all these radical things like, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, and that sounds so messianic. They're like, who is this guy? So even though he's all the way up in Capernaum and they're kind of down in Jerusalem, they've already kind of spent, sent these religious spies up to spy on Jesus and keep an eye on him. So they keep an eye on him. He's eating in a sinner's house with tax collectors. And they ask his disciples, and it's almost like they kind of lean in. Hey, Andrew. Hey, hey Peter. You know, we, we know you. We've seen you. This is your hometown. You know us. Hey, guys, come over here for a minute. They're not going to, like, step into the, the, the property. They're not going to step over the threshold because that would make them ceremonially unclean. And Pharisees, they didn't do that kind of thing. You can be unclean, but I cannot be unclean. So come up to the end of the, of the threshold, and we'll just chat. They called the disciples up, and they asked him a question. They said, why does he, speaking of Jesus, eat with tax collectors and sinners? Or another way of looking at this is, why doesn't he eat with us? I mean, we can't even get a coffee with this dude, right? Like, like he is just spending all of his time with, with tax collectors and sinners, and he's supposed to be the Messiah, the Holy One. He's not even spending any time with us, the people he should be spending time with. Why is he hanging out with these people? And why isn't he hanging out with me? Why can't I get any of his attention? Besides, he, he's a rabbi, right? He should be with us, the rabbis, the teachers. You would think Jesus would have, oh, I'm so sorry I offended you. No, no, no. This is what makes Jesus such an interesting character. He kind of doubles down on it. And this is what he says back. I love this. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy. And keep in mind, he's saying this in Levi's house. Levi's there. His, his other tax collector and sinner friends are all kind of hanging around. I haven't come to call the healthy. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. And I just imagine in that moment, like, you know, you, you hear like silverware hitting plates and there's noise and everything's kind of dead silence. And uh, like Levi and his friends are like put the forks down with like that dumbfounded look like, did he just call me a, like, did you call me sick? Levi, like, Jesus, you're embarrassing me in front of my friends. Did you just call us sick? I think Jesus just would have laughed like, yeah, Levi, you guys are sick. What's interesting is, and John doesn't tell us how this whole, or rather Peter doesn't tell us how this whole conversation plays out, no one fights him. 
No one's like, we're not sick. It's almost like, yeah, I guess he's right. It's almost like something's beginning to happen in Levi and his friends. They're beginning to see who they are in the presence of Jesus. And they know they, they're not adding up. I'm not who I wanted to be. I'm not the man I thought I would be. I, I didn't do the things I, I promised to do. I'm not the husband I wanted to be or the, the father I wanted to be. Or I, I, I'm, not, I'm not who I thought I was. It's just not adding up. There's, there's something broken in me. And there's not something broken in him. Levi, don't come for the healthy. It's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. I, I wonder if Levi knew what hung in the balance of his decision to follow, of his decision to say yes, of his decision not to run out when Jesus called him sick. I wonder if Levi knew what would hang in the balance, that he would be invited not just to follow Jesus, but to witness and experience all that Jesus did. And Matthew, he had, Levi, he had scribes, he had people following him, and they were writing down all the accounts of Jesus' life. Like, he was invited to write a gospel. You know, Matthew, Mark, that's Matthew, that's Levi. I wonder if he knew what hung in the balance. His willingness to say, maybe you're right. Maybe I'm not all I thought I was. Let me, let me ask you, and then we'll jump back to the story. I wonder if you know what hangs in the balance of your decision to admit, maybe I'm not all I thought I was. Maybe I'm not as healthy as I thought. Maybe I'm not the person I thought I was. Perhaps I need some help. The, the, the truth is, you don't know. You're a little like Levi. You have no idea what hangs in the balance. But if I could be honest with you, what hangs in the balance for you is a world of freedom. It's a world of peace. It's a world where God would bring something for you that would change your life and set you on the path you've always wanted, but never knew how to get and never knew how to be. The truth is you'll never know until you're willing to say yes. Every day of your life, every day of your life, there's an open invitation to follow Jesus. Back to the story. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Then he goes a step further. And this is really offensive. I mean, think of yourself being Peter, right? You're one of Jesus' chosen. I'm a good guy. I went to synagogue. I worked hard. I, I did the right things. Jesus followed up with, I have not come to call. Who, Jesus? Who have you not come to call? I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And Peter's saying, wait a minute, Jesus, but you called me, and you called my brother, and you called my friends. What are you saying? Are you saying we're not righteous? Are you saying we're not good? And Jesus doesn't answer this, but the truth is Jesus can say, no, no, I, you're not. I haven't met any righteous people. The truth is I've come to call all of you because all of you are sinners. All of you have fallen short. All of you are in need of a doctor. So I'm here to call all of you. You see, what's amazing about this, and this was something completely brand new in, in, in history. This had never been done before. In ancient religions, in, in, in ancient pa paganism, uh, like you didn't kind of leave your faith. and There was no proselytizing. There was no leaving one faith and going to another. It's not like you would convert from one form of paganism to another form of paganism. No Jew was trying to convert people to Judaism. 
You just, you just were kind of born into it. It was yours. And in paganism, when you met people who had a different God, you just invited that God in. Really, the gods, the gods were like apps. They, they were. Like you would meet somebody and, and they would say, hey, you, you, you want your crops to grow? I, I know a God. And you want your, your house to be taken? I know. You want your kids to go short? I know a God. It's like, great. There's a God for that. Just, just add the God to my mantle. I've got six in my house already. Put another one over there in that corner. You would just add gods to your religion. That's how, how they practice. You would just keep adding gods. You would add other gods to, to your religion. So you'd have all these gods in your house. You were just invited to add more. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, no, I'm not inviting you to add more to this. I'm, in, I'm inviting you to step away from. I'm inviting you to, to kind of put away the old and step into something brand new. There's, there's no blending. There's no mixing. There's no add me to your list of other gods and, you know, put a statue of me on your mantle. No, no I, I'm doing something that's never been done before. I want you to abandon what was, and I want you to step in to what's new. Jesus was different. Jesus sought out Levi. Jesus sought out Peter and Andrew and James and John. And the truth is, Jesus is seeking you out. Why? Because the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near, which means you are never far. You are a turn of the direction. You are, you are one decision. You are, are one change of direction away from following him in all that he would have for you. The kingdom of God has come near. And it's a new kingdom. It's a kingdom of the heart. It's a kingdom of conscience. It's going to flip the script on everything you've known and every way you've practiced and all the behavioral conformity that was. So what do we do? He said, I'm inviting you, repent and believe the good news. Turn your life in the direction of, turn away from what was. Abandon the old. Don't add me to the list. Abandon it and run in my direction. And then to illustrate his point even farther, he, he, he takes this a, a step in another, like even further than this before. And I love what, what he does here. He, he, he kind of illustrates this in such a, an interesting way. And he does it with, with common knowledge, right? Knowledge that, that all the people there would have, would have heard and would have understood, although when we hear it, it's not going like, to connect with us as well. But this first century audience, they, they would absolutely agree with this. This is one of uh, Jesus' favorite metaphors. He says this. He says, no one, <clears throat> no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. And they're thinking, yeah, of course we don't do that, Jesus. That's just stupid. No one does that. Of course you, like, you know that. Of course no one would do that. Why? Well, because if you did that, the, the new piece will pull away from the old as it shrinks and make the tear worse. Thinking Jesus, like, we know that. We've known that since we can remember knowing anything. And again, we're like, yeah, whatever. Like, we just buy a new pair of pants. You didn't buy a new pair of pants in this culture. Clothes were exceptionally expensive. As a matter of fact, you didn't tan clothes down. You would do everything you could to keep the garment you had. You would fix it. You would, you would sew it. Yeah, of course you wouldn't, Jesus. Oh, here, let me tell you something else you already know. He keeps going. No one, in the same way, would pour new wine into old wineskins. And if you're anything like me, it's like, what's a wineskin? Right? Wine comes out of a bottle. No, no, no. No one would pour new wine into old wineskins, and everyone's kind of laughing at the audience. Of course they wouldn't do that. That would be like, what an idiot. Of course. Why? Otherwise, the wine will burst, and the skin, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. Yeah, okay, Jesus, of course. What are you getting at? 
What's the point? And the point of Jesus' message is this. He's using this imagery of torn cloth and and burst wineskins. He's using this imagery to to show the impossibility of of blending this, this new covenant, this new kingdom, this new way of living that he's introducing with this old way, with the old customs, with the old religion and the old traditions and, and the old way of thinking and the old worldview. He said, you're going to try, and they do. They try for years and years to try to find a way to blend it. He's like, it, it's not going to work. You can blend it, but it, it's, there's not a meshing of it. It's like, it, it's a clashing, and, and they don't blend. It doesn't fit. You can't do it. You'll tear clothes. You'll burst wineskins. You can't take what I'm giving you and bring it and try to blend it in and mesh it with something that was. They don't fit. It doesn't work. This Roman way of thinking, this this first century Judaism way of thinking, it's not going to blend with what I'm doing. All of that was pointing to this moment. It was an anticipation of someone who would come and bring an answer for the world. The answer is here. The old needs to go away. The old needs to be abandoned for you to run after this new thing that I'm giving you. Don't try to blend it. It's completely, completely incompatible. My guess is that is the reason that some of you, if you hated church, you hated going to church. It it didn't seem to work. It didn't seem, there was a blending and it it didn't seem, it didn't didn't work. It it, it seemed incompatible. It was. See, Jesus had come to fulfill and retire the law and what was and introduce something brand new for the entire world. But the old had to pass away so the new could begin. Jesus goes on, no, they poured new wine into new wineskins. And if the new wine is the message of Jesus, then the wineskins is this new thing Jesus is doing. Jesus would say, I'm going I'm to build something and, and not even the gates of hell are going to be able to stop it. Nothing's going to be able to stop it. This new thing, this, this gathering, this ecclesia, my church, he, he would say to the, the, the five that are following him even now, you're a part of it. If you believe and you follow, you're a part of it. If you're here this morning and you believe and you follow, he would say, you're a part of it. Or you've been invited to be a part of it. It's the new thing. And it will last forever. Jesus is teaching the framework for what will come. But before we can sort all that out, Peter just jumps into another story. He's a storyteller. This is what he does. He just keeps going. There's one story after another to illustrate this this overwhelming point that Jesus is trying to make. He continues to to teach, and he's still up in in the area of Capernaum. If you can go to that map for me. He's still up in this area of of Capernaum. He he hasn't gone far. My guess is, although the... The the towns and villages aren't huge. This city was big enough. There was probably two synagogues. He's still teaching. He's still kind of doing his thing. He goes from one place to another. And Peter picks up the story. Jesus, he went into another synagogue and with a man with a shriveled hand who was there. The man with the shriveled hand, what we know about it is very little, but it was probably the man's hand was broken or his fingers were broken. And it probably wasn't, the bones weren't set right or maybe were not set at all. And because of it, it began to grow deformed and it began to to shrivel up on itself and he had no use of it. What we we also know is that it was probably hidden and out of sight because it would have been very embarrassing and and kind of a mark against him to, to have that exposed. 
He makes his way into the synagogue with Jesus, and it's almost like, like kind of that unspoken dialogue happens where he looks at Jesus, and Jesus looks at him, and Jesus immediately knows what's going on, and he's kind of hoping, hey, Jesus, like, don't say anything now, but when we leave here, can you do you know, your Jesus thing and take care of it? Like, can we meet outside the, the synagogue, and then you can take care of it? And Jesus has a total other plan in mind. And Peter says, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you this, but it's hard for me to even say this because I can't believe that the people I love that, that, that it's actually happening. He said, some of them. These are Peter, people that Peter knew. This is the town that Peter grew up in. He knew these people. He said, I can't believe that they would do this. But some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. For what? So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. See, the application of the Sabbath was that come the Sabbath, you couldn't heal. You couldn't offer medical help. You could do something in case of an emergency, like if, if somebody was, was drowning, if somebody was hanging off a cliff, you could do something to save their life. But if somebody needed medical help, no, 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 we draw the line there. If, if somebody needs some, no, we, we draw the line. Can't do those kinds of things. There was this, this, this almost religious rule. There was this behavioral conformity about the Sabbath. And Jesus was going to face this thing head on. So Jesus says to his audience, to everyone who can hear, he speaks out directly to the man. I'm sure this is like the worst day of this guy's life, hoping he can keep his deformity hidden, and Jesus would just deal with this afterwards. He says to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. I mean, just imagine if that's how we started a service. Us. Hey, just stand up in front of everyone. Let me make a spectacle of you. It's like, what? Yeah, stand up in front of everyone. No, no, no. You got the wrong guy, Jesus. I'm cool. No, no. Stand up in front of everyone. And now it's a scene, and everybody knows. I mean, they, they might not see the hand, but they know the guy. They know the deformity. Oh, that's the guy with, with you know, the weird hand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked the audience, not the man who's standing up. Jesus asked the audience, hey, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? And they begin thinking, oh, I don't know that I want to answer this one. We think we know the right answer, right? It's to do good, but we're also not supposed to do anything. So I really don't know if I should answer this at all. But before they can even kind of confer and get an answer together, Jesus asked the question another way. Hey, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, or to save a life or to kill? We don't know this man's situation entirely, but it could have been a matter of life and death. It could have been that he was starving and he couldn't work because he had a deformity or no one would hire him because his hand didn't work. Maybe it was actually a matter of life and death for this man. But according to their law, according to their tradition, nothing could be done. So, so what do we do? He's posing an answer to his audience. Do we save a life or do we kill? Or another way of saying it, you can go put that slide up, that's fine. Is the law of God for the benefit of God? Is that what we're doing here? We just have to keep the law to, 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 to benefit God? Or is it for the benefit of those that God loves? This law about the Sabbath, this law about honoring the tradition, why was it given? And they don't know how to answer. As a matter of fact, I, what I really think is they know how to answer, but they don't want to answer. Because it would mean if they answer the question, they're now accountable to the answer. It's like when you're a kid and, and your parents ask you a question, and you know the answer to the question, but you don't want to answer the question because you know if you do, it's trouble for you later. I, I mean, I've had that happen to me so many times. They ask the question, I'm not answering that. Come on, you know the answer to me. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not touching that. Right? You've been set up for it. I see some of the kids there. You're smiling. You're in the same position. It's the same way. 
Jesus posed the question to the audience to think, I'm not touching that. No, come on, you know the answer. What's better? What do we do? I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to say Jesus. I, if I say, then you're going to hold me accountable, and I don't like that. What are you going to do on the Sabbath? I'm sure as Peter's telling this story to Mark, Mark's like, what did they say? Peter said, they didn't say anything. They remained silent. You see, they knew, but they didn't dare answer because it would make them accountable to their words. So how did Jesus respond to this? How did Jesus respond to those who applied God's law over the care and the benefit of people? He looked around at them in anger. And that Greek word anger is actually translated wrath. This is the wrath of Jesus. He looked at them in wrath because they were prioritizing the commands over the people that the commands were given to. They they were prioritizing the law over the people that God loved so much. That's why he gave the law, that God loved them so much. Jesus looked at them and said, you're devaluing, you're, you're dehumanizing, you're taking advantage of, you're manipulating, you're hurting people with the law. And that's not why the law was given. With wrath, with anger, he looked at them in anger. And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. And then Peter says, and then he did it. He did what we all expected him to do. He did the thing that was going to get him in so much trouble later. He said to the man with the shriveled hand, stretch out your hand. And the man slowly stretched it out. And his hand was completely restored. And then, and get this, this is like, this, the, the level of response from the Pharisees. We read this and it's just kind of like, like man, that just seems a, a, little, a little wacky. It seems a little weird. Why would they escalate so far? It's because we don't see what they see. And the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Because he healed on the Sabbath. But they understood what we don't understand. They understood that, that yeah, this, is, this seems small to you. But what this really means is this. There was no way to blend the kingdom they were trying to preserve with the kingdom Jesus had come to establish. There was no way for them to hold on to their sacred traditions and their, their sacred beliefs and their sacred ways with this new thing Jesus was doing. Hey, when he just healed on the Sabbath. This is like cancel culture taken to the extreme. Right? It's like, don't like send the guy home. Don't, don't put him back on a cart, like back to Jerusalem. Don't send him back with his parents. No, no, no. Let's kill him. Because he healed somebody on the Sabbath. The meaning was so much deeper, but it's lost on us. Because we're not first century Jews who practice Judaism and understand that importance. That scripture I read to you at the beginning, it actually happens at the end of this. Jesus concluded there, the Sabbath was made for man, not man, for the Sabbath. What Jesus is saying there is, is God, he's like, he's like the, a good parent, a good parent that loves you so much. He loves you more than the rules that are at place. Don't you feel that way as a parent with your kids? The rules are there to protect and to guide and to keep your kids safe, to give them a hope and a future. But we don't love the rules more than we love our kids. Jesus is saying, that's that's your heavenly father. He is the same way. He loves you more than he even loves his rules. And that's what got Jesus killed. Because he introduced something so radically brand new 
There was no blending. There was no mixing. The two were completely different, and one had to go away so the new could come into being. Peter goes on, he finishes off with, with kind of taking us through a, a little bit more of, of a narrative and stories, and Jesus continues to teach, and crowds continue to come, and Jesus makes more outlandish statements, and then somebody appears for the first time in Peter's story, Mary, the mother of Jesus. She shows up on the scene with Jesus' brothers. I bet you didn't know Jesus had a lot of, he had brothers and sisters, and they show up on the scene, and, and they, they've come to take Jesus home. They've come to, to kind of take him out of the crowd and bring him home, and well, why would you do that, Mary? We have to save him from himself. Like, do you hear what he's saying? Do you hear the crowds responding? And Mark's, I, I think before, as Peter dictates this to Mark, Mark's like, are you sure you want to write this in here? He's like, Mark, I'm just telling you what happened. Mary and the brother show up, and Mary says something about her son that I'm guessing as a mom perhaps you have said about your kids, but we never expect this stuff to be said about Jesus. Mary shows up on the scene with the brothers of Jesus to bring Jesus home, and Peter's like, Mary, why are you here? And here's what Mary said, because he is out of his mind. I'm just quoting Mary. He is out of his mind. Do you hear what he's saying? Do you see what he just did? doesn't look good for Mary. The truth is, it doesn't look good for Jesus either, does it? That's what we're going to pick up next week. But before we go this morning, there's two things I want to end on. The first is this. If you're a sinner, and don't misunderstand me, you are. We all are. This isn't me pointing the finger at you. Everybody here is a sinner. If you're a sinner... You are invited to follow Jesus right where you are. With whatever you've done, whatever you're doing, whatever you thought about doing in this service when you get home, you are invited to follow Jesus right where you are. And, and I know that sounds radical to you and you're thinking, yeah, but you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what I was thinking. Like, you don't even know. The truth is, if Jesus were sitting right here with you, he would invite himself into your life just like he did in the Gospel of Mark with Levi. In the midst of your mess, in the midst of your sin, and you would be uncomfortable. You wouldn't like him seeing all those things and hearing those things and knowing what you're doing. But he would be totally comfortable. And he would be so comfortable with you until you were comfortable with him. And then he would say, now let me lead you to something better. You've been invited to follow Jesus. The question is, why don't you? Do you know what hangs in the balance of your willingness to say, yes, I'm a sinner. Yes, I'm broken. Yes, I need help. And Jesus is here saying, then follow me because I have the help for you. Follow Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a church girl, if you're somebody who's been raised in church, you are invited to yield to Jesus. So yield. When you're, when, when, when your will and his will, they kind of bump up against each other time and time again. Just say yes to his will. I mean, if, if you understand anything from the Gospels, his way is always the best way. As we see with Mark, as we see with Levi, as we'll continue to see as the story goes on, his way is the best way. So when your will bumps up against his will, remember, there's no blending. There's no, there's no meshing of the two. You'll try, but it won't work. It'll fail, and you'll hurt yourself, and you'll hurt everyone else. So don't blend. Don't keep bumping up against. Yield to his will. And what was his will? He left us with this, this most radical, single, simple, terrifying command to love one another the way that I have loved you. That's all I want you to do. Just love one another 
the way that I love you. Imagine, imagine what your life would be like if that's what we all did. I'll, I'll close with this. Levi, one more time, I told you, he, he becomes Matthew. His name changes, and he writes the gospel of Matthew. And it, it's an incredible gospel. There's so much detail, and there's, there, there's so much more detail than what's given in, in Peter's gospel and Mark uh, about the events that happened with Jesus. One in particular, he records this. And I think he records it in there because of what it means to him in his past, in his life. Jesus gives this incredible illustration. He says, Here, here's what I want you to do. If, if, if you want to follow me, if you want to be like me, if you want to see and, and kind of walk that new path, he would say, take, take my yoke upon you. We all have a yoke. You have a yoke. We all have something we do. We have a way of looking at the world. We have a way of doing things. He said, I, I want you to, to take yours off. There's no blending. There's no carrying two. Abandon one and follow the other. Take yours off and put mine on because mine's better anyway. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and humble in heart. And then he gives us this promise. And all of you who are willing to do that, all of you who are willing to, to hear and listen and learn, you will find rest for your weary souls. Just follow Put one way off. Abandon it. Turn, repent, and believe and follow in the direction of the new. Isn't that what we all want? To hear and to listen, to hear and obey, to hear and to understand. The new is so much better. The old, Jesus said, was there for a reason, but I fulfilled it. Now join me into the new. I don't know if your version of faith stands in contrast to that. But if it does, perhaps you don't have the original version. Perhaps you don't have Peter's version. If it was dictated to you by a pastor or a priest or a parent, maybe, maybe they just didn't understand that they were trying to blend new wine into old wineskins, and, and it just doesn't work. But Jesus said, I have something better for you. Would you follow me into it? Put away the old. Go for the new. Something new is here. Something near is here. The time has come. The kingdom of God is here, and you are one decision away from following, from yielding to him. So repent. Turn your life. Believe the good news. When we do, all life begins to change. We'll get into that more next week, so don't miss next week.